0: Continuing Joshua, this sermon series on Joshua, where, where we see that God fights for his people. This is just beautifully encouraging book. And I want to draw, we're going to be in Joshua 7 this week. Uh, last week we were in Joshua 5. Isn't there a chapter 6? Yep. That was this midweek Bible study that we sent out. If you don't know what I'm talking about, consider this another reminder. Get on the church email list. We send out those midweek Bible studies as we progress through series and things like that. So we looked at Joshua 6 in the middle of the week. We looked at Joshua 5 last week. And I want to give a quick recap of Joshua 5 because last week, if I'm being honest, last week was an easy message to listen to. Joshua 5, the Lord rolls away the approach of Israel, 5.9 specifically says, I have rolled away the repro- reproach from you. We looked at how that foreshadowed Jesus, right, our reproach of sin, the taunt of the enemy, this condition of shame and disgrace being taken away. That's easy to listen to. I like hearing, hey, the condition of my shame and disgrace has been removed. I don't have the power to do it. God in his love did it for me. That's easy to listen to. Joshua chapter 7 isn't as easy to listen to. But Scripture's not a buffet. We don't get to pick and choose what we engage with. We have to engage with it all faithfully. And so this week, we're going to look at some hard topics. Joshua 7 really lays out three case studies of sin, three different sins that the people of Israel demonstrate. And we're going to look at how God responds to them and how the people respond to them. But do so with chapter 5 in mind. Right? We looked at in chapter 5, how do we deal with this problem of sin that we are incapable of removing from ourselves. So even if this week may not be as easy to listen to, do so with ears and a heart that remembers what God has done uh, back that we looked at last week. But before we dive in, please join me in prayer. God you are a holy god you are holy 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 the essence of holiness and that is what you deserve from us that is what you command from us you say be holy as you are holy so lord make this a holy moment we come before you broken we come before you with our own weights our own blinders on lord i I know i do remove them free us from distraction Free us from reading what we want to read out of your word. Teach us from your word as only you can. We trust you to lead us in this time, but we want this to be a holy moment. We want this to be a continuation of our worship as we offer ourselves to you. Hide me. Get rid of me in every way. May it be your word speaking, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I know I said we looked at Joshua 6. In the middle of the week but i i, I want to make sure that we do if, if you missed the video if you missed that bible study i want to make sure you understand the context of chapter seven because context is crucial so in, in joshua 6 we see the battle of jericho and the battle of jericho when when the walls of jericho fall down is this incredible victorious moment for the people of israel only made possible by the power of the lord right I mean, how many of you, if you had to go to, to battle, if you had to, if I was like, hey, you know what, I love Dale and the guys over at the MAC, but we're going to war, how many of you are like, oh, I'm going to grab a trumpet? That'll be a great thing to, to fight a war with. No, right? None of us are, and we're not going to fight Dale and, and the guys over at the MAC. We love them. They love us. Well, the point is, if we're going to battle against someone, a very real physical enemy, if we're engaging in conflict, we're not grabbing musical instruments, And so in chapter 6, we see this incredible military victory that can only come through the power of the Lord. But then in 6.18, we see a very, very important element of the people of Israel engaging with Jericho. 6.18 says, uh, You keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble out upon it. So you see, okay, you're about to engage in a battle with Jericho. God promises that I'm with you, I'm gonna fight for you. He says at the start of chapter six, He says, Hey, I've given Jericho to you. In the video, we looked at that guaranteed promise of the Lord. But then there's this, this command that is vitally important it says, Don't take anything. Jericho has been devoted for destruction, the things of Jericho have been set aside for destruction. Don't take anything. Because if you do, you have now attached yourself to that destruction. And you've devoted yourself now to the destruction. Don't do this because it won't go well for you. All right? So God is abundantly clear what's going to happen in chapter 6. And what the people are to do and are not to do. And then we come to chapter 7. And we come to the first case study that we see. And it's the person of Achan. And we're not going to read all of the passages, but you'll see, you'll see the verses as we break it down. So we won't be going through the chapter 7 chronologically, like verse 1, 2, 3. We're going, to, we're going to move back and forth between the cases. But first we start with Achan, which starts in verse 1. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Then you jump to verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them, and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Chapter 6. Don't take the devoted things. This will connect you with destruction. Chapter 7, I took the devoted things. We're connected with destruction. And in this first case study, we see a pattern of sin that I really think we see throughout Scripture. In Achan, he's at least honest. He lays it out. What did he say? He says, truly I have sinned against the Lord God. This is what I did. I saw, then I coveted, then I took, then I concealed. What did Adam and Eve do? Do in the garden. They saw, they coveted they took, they concealed. Saul and David. Saul saw David, saw his popularity, saw his success with the Lord, and he coveted it, so he tried to take it. David with Bathsheba. David saw Bathsheba. David coveted Bathsheba. David took Bathsheba. Then David tried to cover it. Judas, he saw an opportunity for personal gain. He coveted this opportunity for personal gain. He took this opportunity for personal gain. Ananias and Sapphira, they saw an opportunity to keep money back from themselves. They coveted this money for themselves. They took this money from the Lord for themselves, and then they covered it. This pattern appears over and over again throughout Scripture. I saw, I coveted, I took, I concealed. And so the question that I have to ask myself, even though it's not an easy question to answer, but does this pattern exist in my own life? The sins in my own life, do they follow? Maybe not all four, but at least some of them. Consider anger. Consider discontent. Consider envy or bitterness. I saw Tim's car. I coveted Tim's car. I couldn't take Tim's car. So now I'm a little angry at Tim that he drives a nicer car than me. I'm discontent with my own car that works just fine that God has provided for me. I'm envious of Tim's car. I'm bitter that I don't have this nice thing. I saw, I coveted, I couldn't take. But I'm not going to be on it, right? Like when I, hey Tim, How you doing? Good, Sam, how you doing? Oh, I'm really mad at you that you're driving. No, I'm going to conceal. I'm going to pretend like I don't have this envy, this bitterness, this this resentment, this discontent in my own life. Lust, the sin of lust follows this pattern to a T. Saw, coveted, took, concealed. We have to be willing to ask ourselves as we study Joshua 7, as we see this pattern of sin in Achan's life, we have to be willing to ask ourselves the hard question and say, okay, are there elements of this pattern in my own life? Are there things in my life that I'm looking at with envious eyes, that I'm coveting with an envious heart, that I'm taking and that I'm concealing? If we see this pattern in our lives, we have to be willing to address it, to repent of it. That was a part of what we looked at in Joshua 5, is the necessity of repentance when aware of sin, when that holy conviction comes. But we see this in the life of Achan. We see this in his answer. And really, we see why this is so important. How did Achan start off that? He said, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. Guys, we we have to understand that sin is first and foremost sin against a holy God. I mean, if I sin against a brother, against a friend, against a family member, it should grieve me that I have broken that fellowship as well. But the grief over sin must begin with a recognition that I have sinned against a holy God. That is where the pain has to start with. Because if I'm not bothered by sinning against a holy God, then I'm missing the weight of His holiness and the weight of my sin against Him. This is where Achan began, and then he lays out this pattern. This is the first case study we see of sin in chapter 7. But I said we see three. And now we're going to jump back. Okay, so we jump from Achan sinned, and then we jump to this conversation where all the people of Israel come, and it gets whittled down until we realize that it's Achan who sinned. What happened in between there? What happened in between there to cause the people of Israel to realize, hey, there's a very real problem going on in our midst? Well, let's back up to verse 2. And we're going to look at the second case study. Because the other thing we have to realize is that our sin is personal, but it affects others. Right? And this, we're not going to read these passages because these are whole chapters, but if you look at Numbers 16, you look at Esther 7, 8, and 9, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, 2 Samuel 24, or if you consider in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, where it describes us as a body dependent on one another, interacting with one another. We have to realize that our sin might be personal, but it affects those around us. Our anger, our resentment, our refusal to forgive, our gossip, our malice, our greed, it affects the people in our lives. It, it can't not. And so as we consider these, as we look at this transitioning from case one to case two, you have case one where Aiken demonstrates the pattern of sin, and then before we get into case two, you see, and as we get into case two, you see that the sin, though individual to Achan, affected the people. Let me reread verse one. For Achan, the son of Carmi, took some of the devoted things. But how did that verse start and end? The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. The sin was Achan's. The consequences affected everyone. And then we get to verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went and spied out Ai. So they have this incredible victory over Jericho, this pinnacle city with these walls. It's a great moment. They're feeling good, right? They just won the Super Bowl. Things are going well. Okay, next up is the city of Ai, not as intimidating as Jericho, not as fortified as Jericho, not as big as Jericho. Joshua says, hey, go out and spy it out. That's next on our list in this conquest as we proceed into the land that God has promised us, as we follow him into this land. We have the city of Ai. And the men go out and they spy it out. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up to the city of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men. They fled before them and chased them to the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Great victory, terrible defeat. Great victory over insurmountable walls, over strong odds, terrible defeat at the hand of a few. Their hearts melted and became as water. Why? What do we see in the behavior of the spies? Well, first, again, the sin of Achan affected the people. They took the things devoted, or he took the things devoted for destruction, is now associated with the people. But how did the spies react? Don't overlook the spy. This is an easy in this chapter seven, it's easy to skip over the behavior of the spies. But again, I've said this time and time again: every detail in Scripture matters. And so let's look at what the spies say to Joshua. They said, go up and attack. And we think, okay, go up and attack. No, the the literal Hebrew word was go up and smite these people. And don't do it with everybody. We can do it with just a few because they're only a few people. So the spies underestimate the enemy. The spies are arrogant and they're guaranteed victory. They say, Joshua, go up and smite these people with minimal strength. What does it say? It says, don't make all the people toil. Don't ask everybody to work for this, right? Give them them an off day. Let them take a breather. We can put in the B team and we can still win this game without any problem. Just just take it easy. Just coast through this victory because we got this. And they get routed. They flee before this smaller force, this weaker force, who they thought they were assuredly going to destroy. I think they went up pretty arrogantly. I mean, consider Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Where in the preparation for the battle of Ai do we see prayer? Where do we see Joshua seeking the counsel of the Lord? Now, he might have done it. I, can't, I, I cannot say that he did not do it because the scripture does not say that he did not do it. I know in other places it makes it clear that Joshua sought the counsel of the Lord, that he went before the Lord. It doesn't here. So I at least have to ask the question, okay, in my own lives, do I approach battles without taking the time to seek the counsel of God? Right? I have to translate this to my own life and say, okay, are there moments, are there days, are there weeks, are there months, are there hard conversations, are there difficult situations where I'm relying on my own understanding? I think I did the legwork. I don't need to go see what God has to say about this. Trust not in your own understandings. I think the spies demonstrated what happens when you do. Proverbs 16:18. pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. What did the spies say? Hey, we got this, Joshua. We've got this with a smaller force. The enemy, look how weak and tiny the enemy is. We can do this. And we can do this without everybody trying. We don't have to give our best. And then their hearts melt and become like water. So the question, remember I've told you guys uh, so many times I process through questions. So as I read chapter 7, as I read this account of the spies and the corresponding results, the question I have to ask myself, and again, these aren't easy questions, but I have to ask myself, am I walking through life expecting victory in day-to-day battles relying on my own minimal effort? Well, I'm busy today, so we'll, we'll push prayer, we'll push time with God's word, we'll push worship. That can get moved to, I can do today on my own. I can, I can deal with this on my own today. I'll, I'll use God tomorrow when the battle's harder. Am I trying to win battles by thinking I'm going to get through it on my own less than all? I mean, is this how I approach life? It's, it's hard when I talk to people and I hear things like, well, I feel like I'm losing this battle. Right? Like, I'm losing this battle with lust. I'm losing this battle with anger. I'm losing this battle with bitterness, with greed. And the question I ask then is, okay, well, talk to me about your time in prayer. Talk to me about your prayer life. Well, you know, I pray before meals. And, um, you know, thank you for this food. Okay, uh, what else? I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of it. You pray on a Sunday morning. That's true. Okay, well, what about your time with Scripture? Talk to me about God's Word. I've been really busy. Work's, work's been overwhelming. Uh, and then the weather's nice. I'm trying to get in. You know, I like to do this outside. I'm trying to get this in before the weather turns bad. And then my kids are busy with games. So, like, you know, I'm, I'm hoping in a month when things slow down, then I'll, then I'll be able to make time for, for God's Word again. Okay. Talk to me about your engagement with other believers. Who's encouraging you? Who are you checking in with? Who are you leaning on? Who's, you know, who's sharpening you? Well, I mean, remember my previous answer about how busy I am? You know, but I I think like in two months when this season ends, then I'll get back to church. Then I'll be able to make the Bible study. You know, then I'll be able to make the prayer time. Then I'll be able to re-engage with both. I mean, okay. If I say those things, do I really have grounds to be surprised when the battle feels much harder than I expected? I look at the spies, I look at their approach to the city of Ai, I look at the people of Israel's, their approach to the city of Ai, and I wonder, man, am I struggling because I'm trying to do this on my own without giving it my all? Guys, we're at war. I've said this, I don't know how many times. We're at war, there's an enemy. What's it say in John? The enemy seeks to kill and destroy. And we're like, well, but not me, surely not me. I don't have a personal enemy who wants to destroy me in my life. So I'm just going to kind of coast right now. We got to look at the spies and we have to ask, okay, are we underestimating the enemy? Are we thinking we can give less than 100% without seeking God's face, without seeking his counsel, his will and still expect to win the fight? I don't know. I think we see this when we look at the people of AI or the, the battle of AI and the spies of Israel. And then again, that leads right into the point that bridged the gap between you have the sin of Achan and then you have Achan's sin affected the people of Israel. You have the spy's sin of arrogance and underestimating the enemy, of relying on their own counsel. And then we see how it affects the people of Israel. The battle doesn't go their way. Their hearts melt. They flee before the enemy. And then we come to Joshua. And make no mistake, Joshua was a fantastic leader. He really, I mean, Joshua, it is so humbling to read the book of Joshua from the perspective of leadership because he gets it so frequently. But I I really think he misses the point here because he accepts the counsel of the spies. Joshua's the leader, right? The spies are allowed to give advice, but at the end of the day, Joshua is the one who sent up less than the full force of Israel to battle the people of Ai. Joshua accepts their counsel. When the battle goes poorly, how does he respond? Does Joshua say, well, you know what? Maybe we should have sought God's will. Does he say, you know what? Maybe, maybe we did something in the battle of Jericho. Maybe this is on us. Maybe we should have approached this differently. No, what does Joshua say in verse 6? Then Joshua, so the, the battle has just gone terribly. The people have fled. Ai has won. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. He says exactly what the people of Israel said when they left Egypt. They left Egypt and they're wondering. They say, why did you bring us out of Egypt without this food? It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. Joshua, they cross the river of Jericho or Jordan. They enter the promised land. Things don't go well. And Joshua's immediate response is, God, why would you do this to us? I don't know if you can see that cartoon. There's a guy riding his bike. He's got a stick in his hand because that's, you know, we we take our pet stick for a, a bike ride. But he's riding the bike. He's got the stick. He decides to put it between the spokes of his wheel. He naturally falls over. Joshua's response to the battle of Ai would be like, if I'm riding my bike, I throw a stick between the wheel, I fall over, I smash my face, and I say, God, why would you do that to me? And this isn't unique. The reason I say I see this as a theme, I see this as a case study of sin, is the people of Israel have done this before, and they do it again after Joshua. Consider these passages. This is Deuteronomy 32, 16. They stirred him to jealousy, they being the people of Israel, they stirred him to jealousy, him being God, with strange gods, With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the Lord, the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no god. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. What do we see in those verses? We see that there are consequences to our behavior towards God. That we invite these consequences. We open ourselves up to these consequences because of our behavior towards God. Because they forgot God. Because they abandoned God. It says they have made me jealous with what is no god. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people there's consequences to our idolatry. There are consequences to our sin. But we don't want to accept that. It's much easier to say, God, why would you do this to us? Why would you bring us across the river Jordan only to let us be defeated in battle? Consider these other passages. This is 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 29. This is the king Ahab. In Israel, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab not doing well, right? How's Ahab respond to this? When things then don't go well for Ahab and the people of Israel, surely Ahab says, okay, you know what? Maybe it's on me. Maybe it's on the idolatry. Maybe it's on the abandonment of God. No, Ahab, verse 17 so the drought comes, punishment comes on the people of Israel, on the nation of Israel because of Ahab's sin. Elijah, prophet of God, right, goes to engage with Ahab. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? This is your fault. Surely it's not my sin. Surely it's not the people's sin. This is Elijah's fault. He immediately passes the blame. And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals, these idols. Second Kings three, great chapter. Read it today. I mean, hard chapter. It will make us ask hard questions, but again demonstrates. In second Kings three, you have a king who, who entices two other kings to join him in battle. They don't seek the counsel of God. They they do nothing to prepare for this in a holy way. He's like, hey, we're going to go do this because I want to go do this. They go and they do it. It doesn't go well for them. And the response is, where's God? Why would God let this happen to us? I mean, really, we see throughout the history of the people of Israel, this unfortunate behavior of time and time again, sin, things go badly. Well, clearly it's God's fault. And what did I say last week as we looked at chapter 5? It's easy for us to look at the people of Israel and say, wow, they really missed the point guys we're we're the people of Israel i mean we're we are the people who hey god says don't do this if you do this this is going to go poorly for you this will go terribly for you sin is destruction sin will kill you do not engage in this sin we engage in the sin anyway things go terribly and then we respond with god whoa i thought you loved me why why would you let this happen to me i've got a memory a painful memory When we were living in Goshen, you remember I said last week I can remember detail. Living in Goshen, New York, we had a Christmas candle. It was red. It was beautiful. It smelled fantastic. My mom put it in the bathroom every Christmas. And she always told us as kids, don't touch the hot wax. You will get burned. Sam loves Christmas. Sam thinks Christmas would never possibly hurt him. So as a child, I see this hot wax candle and I put my finger in it. And I go running to my mom. And I'm like, Mom, I, like my finger's in pain, right? And I remember the look on her face in the kitchen. She's like, well, what happened? Well, I put my finger in the candle. I, the candle I told you not to? Yeah. Okay. You know, and just the look of like, what, what did you think was going to happen? I told you that this was going to burn you. I told you that this was going to be painful. And I chose to do it anyway. And I'm like, Mom, why would you let this happen to me? Why would, you, why would you allow that candle to exist and burn me? Well, you should have done what I told you to do. Guys, we're, we're the people of Israel. And so when I look at Joshua's response, I have to ask myself, I have to be willing to ask myself the hard question and say, when things don't go well in my life, when life is not going well, is my first reaction to blame God or am I willing to do some self-reflection? Wow, my relationships are all going terribly. I'm, You know, my relationships with my friends, my family, they're they're terrible. God, why are you doing this to me? Well, Sam, take a step back and, you know, how do you behave towards the people in your life? When I'm engaging with sin, is my reaction to blame God or is it to say, is there perhaps sin in my life that has led to these consequences? Joshua jumped right to, we lost the battle because God abandoned us, not because... We broke the very commandment that he gave us regarding how we're to engage with this people, with these lands. We have to be willing to ask ourselves, do we automatically default to it's God's fault, or perhaps I'm responsible for the consequences of this? I think this is a lesson we learned from Joshua. But I don't want to leave it there because I think in God's response, I I see so much encouragement for us. I see so much patience. So Joshua in verse 6, he goes through this. This is what he says to God. You know, He says, why have you abandoned us? Why have you done this to us? And I, I love God's response. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Why is that encouraging to me? Because God doesn't allow us to wallow in our poor perspective. I mean, consider Job. These are one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Job 38 to 42. Job 38, 1 and 2. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. And then you jump forward to verse or chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourselves with majesty, or yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together, bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge you that your own right hand can save you." God says to Job, you can't save yourself. You're not God, I'm God. Be honest about who you are, Job. God says to Joshua, be honest about this situation. Why do you, I mean God says, he says, get up, why are you crying? the people of israel sinned you've devoted yourself to destruction that's why the battle didn't go poorly or didn't go well for you but here's why it's encouraging cuz he doesn't leave them there he says this is how we deal with it you brought this on yourself you devoted yourself to destruction you broke what i told you so consecrate yourselves destroy the devoted things remove them from among you he gives the solution he doesn't allow us to stay with our own blind perspective He calls us on it, and that's love, right? I I believe firmly that that's love because He doesn't allow us to stay pointing in the wrong direction. He says, no, 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 Joshua, you've missed the point. You've got the wrong view. Here's the correct view. Here's how we deal with it. And He gives them that path to restoration. It's what we looked at last week with Joshua 5, that He gives Jesus. He says, you've sinned. You need to repent. If you don't repent, sin is going to lead to death. The problem, here's the solution, Jesus. God says to Joshua, here's the problem, here's the solution, consecration and removal of the things devoted for destruction. He doesn't leave us in our error. I love that. I'm so grateful for that. I need that. I need a God who's patient with me and says, okay, Sam, you've missed the point. Here's what's really going on. Here's how we deal with it. It's consecration. It's a return to holiness, a return to being set apart for the Lord. He doesn't acquiesce. God doesn't accept. You know, He doesn't say, okay, Joshua, you know what? I get your perspective. So I'll let you hold on to that. He says, no, that's the wrong perspective. You can't stay in that perspective. That's not truth. Here's what truth is. Here's how we proceed. Here's how we move forward. But there's, there's still lessons in here. There's not just encouragement. There's also lessons. Let me reread verses 12 and 13. Uh, verses 12. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. And then listen to this last phrase here. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah engaging with the prophets of Baal. And this is the, if you're familiar with the Bible, this is the famous incident where the prophets of Baal build an altar and they try and get Baal to call down fire. And Elijah builds an altar and he floods it with water and then God consumes the rocks, the water, the trench, the offering and everything. But before that happens, Elijah says to the people, "See, Ahab calls all the people to witness this showdown between Baal and the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And Ahab calls all the people who have been following his lead, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. Elijah asked the people point blank, look, you you can't go both ways. You don't get both options. How long are you going to try and pretend like you do? And so when I look back at Joshua 7, when I look at Joshua going to God and God responding and saying, no, it didn't go well for you because you have the things devoted for destruction among you, destroy them, remove them, consecrate yourselves, because if you don't, your enemy is going to win. I have to ask in my own life, am I trying to limp between two options? Am I unwilling to destroy the destructive things among myself or among my own life? Am I trying to win the battles without being willing to consecrate myself? I mean, if I put myself in the people of Israel's shoes, right? I've got these things devoted for destruction among me, and I don't want to give them up, but I still want to win. God lays out the solution. You can't have both. They can't coexist. It's like when you go to a game, and, you know, I went to a game, I went to a... A football game one time an NFL game and I saw a guy going into the stadium it was a Steelers Eagles game right battle of Pennsylvania and he's going into the stadium he's got a Steelers jersey on and an Eagles jacket over it and he wound up sitting in our section and the Steelers were doing well and we're winning through like the first three quarters and that jacket slowly got like off the shoulders tied around the waist sitting on the chair right and then the fourth quarter like Steelers just choked and Eagles came back Eagles start winning and that jacket comes back on the shoulders, and then eagles take the lead, and the jacket gets zipped up, and you can't see this. That's not how life works. That's not how sin works. We can't say, well, I wanna keep the things devoted for destruction in my life, but Lord, I'd also really like it if I could win. No, God lays out the solution. God lays out the answer. He addresses our incorrect perspective, and then he gives us how to proceed. Again, please let me reemphasize, if you missed last week's message, go back and watch it because I don't want this. We have to look at these chapters because they're in Scripture. God gave them to us for a reason. We have to ask the hard questions. We have to engage with the difficult topics, but don't get stuck here. Don't, get, don't, don't allow the enemy to get you stuck in a cycle of despair and grief and, okay, I'm trapped in this sin. I'm losing the battle against the enemy. There's no hope. No, go, go back and watch The sermon on rolling away reproach, on how Jesus dealt with our sin, on repentance, on salvation. This past week, the homework, hopefully you guys were doing it, was to read Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, these beautiful chapters on freedom from enslavement to sin. And God does this for Joshua. God does this for the people of Israel. He says, here's the problem. Here's how you deal with it. So, even in the sin of Achan, even in the sin of the spies, even in the sin of Joshua, we see this beautifully patient heart of God. And we also see the truth of God. He doesn't allow the people to succeed, even when they broke, right? He doesn't say, Well, I told you not to take the things devoted for destruction. You did it anyway. That's all. I'm going to let that one slide. No, God is holy. God is just, God is truth, God says there are consequences to sin, there will be consequences to sin, but then he provides the solution, and I think that's so beautiful. I think Joshua chapter 7 gives us this incredible case study of sin, because it forces us to ask hard questions about ourselves. It forces us to say, okay, have I followed the pattern that Adam and Eve established, that Achan fell into, that David fell into, the saw, coveted, took, concealed, Is this existent in my own life? Are there things I'm trying to hide rather than deal with? And then when I lose the battle, am I trying to blame God rather than perhaps accept that I'm responsible? Am I trying to win battles with less than my best? Am I giving God less than my best? And then wondering why things aren't going the way I think they should. Chapter 7 forces us to ask these hard questions. But chapter 7 leaves us with God's solution. With God giving a way to deal with it. And that's why I love Joshua chapter 7. This week, as we continue to consider Joshua chapter 7, I want you to read Joshua 8, because Joshua 7 concludes with God says, He says, Consecrate yourselves, destroy the things devoted for destruction. Then go read Joshua chapter 8 and see what happens when the people do this, when the people obey, when they get back in line with God's commands. So if you're still maybe feeling like, Wow, Joshua 7, that's really hard, read Joshua 8 this week, and you'll see... The change when the people realign themselves with God's standards of holiness. But then I also want us to read Malachi this week. It's a short book, four chapters. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Joshua 8 on Monday. Malachi 1, 2, 3, 4. There's your week. I'm not a reader. Okay, you can do one chapter a day, right? Uh, I expect you can all do one chapter a day. I can do one chapter a day. So we're going to read Joshua 8, and we're going to read Malachi. And then I want us to ask a hard question. In Malachi, God identifies multiple specific sins of the people. And these are subtle sins. And these are insidious sins, because they affect how we engage with the worship and the sacrifice to God, and how we engage with serving God. So keeping in mind the example of Achan, Achan who saw, coveted, took, and then he concealed. What did it say? He concealed it under his tent. He tried to bury it in his everyday life, right? His hub of life, he tried to hide this sin under what he went over every day. So I just want us to read through Malachi, and I want us to ask a very hard question. Lord, reveal to me if there are any of these sins in Malachi that I'm trying to hide under my tent, that I'm trying to pretend don't exist in my life, that I'm trying to bury down in the mundane routine of my life and just ignore that these sins are there. And then the prayer ideas, if if you need, if you're someone who prayer is still uncomfortable for you or unfamiliar with you, you want to grow in prayer, but you're always, you're like, I don't know what to pray. You know, maybe it's, Lord, refine me and purify me. Maybe it's, reveal anything I need to repent from. Maybe it's, teach me how to fight in, in you and you alone. The people tried to fight the battle of AI on their own strength. Maybe we're trying to fight the battles of our life on our own strength. So maybe our prayer needs to be, okay, God, teach me what it means to fight under your counsel, under your command. Maybe we're looking at the enemy and we're underestimating them and we're trying, you know, I can get by with just giving 50%. So maybe it's, Lord, teach me how to give you my all. Teach me what it looks like to give you everything in my life. And then it begins with us. But then maybe we also need to pray, Lord, refine and purify your church. Cleanse your people. Strengthen your people. Teach your people what it means like to remove the things devoted for destruction from among us. Teach us as a people to fight for you, to seek your counsel, to seek your way, for your glory. So those are some prayer ideas for you. So that's what we're going to read. That's what those are the questions we're going to ask. And that's how we're going to pray this week. Please join me in prayer now. Lord, I thank you that you, you love us so much that you refuse to compromise who you are, that it's impossible for you to compromise who you are. You are perfect holiness. You are perfect justice. You are truth, and that cannot change. And I thank you for that. So when we come to you, when I come to you, Lord, with with an improper perspective, with an immature attitude, with eyes on the wrong thing, correct me. Even when it's painful, especially when it's painful, correct me. Remind me of your standards of holiness. And then, Lord, I I also praise you that you have given us the solution. That you have called out the problem, you have identified the issue, and then you have said, here is the response. So, Lord, in my own life, if there are things I need to repent of, convict me of them this week. Break me, bring me to my knees before the cross. Lead me to repentance and confession. If there are those here this morning who need the same thing, God, no matter how painful it may be, break them and bring them to repentance. And Lord, when we repent, when we confess, God, we praise you that you forgive. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the powerment of the Holy Spirit to live a new life. You're so good to us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.